Welcome to this week's podcast from Terrelgan City Church. We hope this message transforms and equips you to reach out. For more information about what's happening at TCC, head to mytcc.com.au or check us out on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Hello. All right, I'm going to pray before we begin so uh, we can let the kids go off and do their thing. Dear Lord, thank you for gathering us here today. Please let this message be a blessing to all those who are here. And I ask that you allow your word to fill and refresh us today. Amen. So, Shan, my fiancé, has been watching a new series on Netflix recently. And I've been avoiding it actively. Um... It's the new Jeffrey Dahmer docu-series, and if anyone has heard of it, it's about a serial killer. Um, He's done unimaginable evil, he's sexually assaulted and killed men and children alike, and other things that I don't want to talk about, Um, and you can see why I don't want to watch this show, It's it's not something for me, but Chan likes listening to and thinking about the criminal mind and that sort of thing. But why I bring that up is, before his death in prison, Dharma professed to be a changed and born-again Christian. And for the most part, I think he was pretty sincere about it. And isn't that a bit uncomfortable? How could someone like that be forgiven by God? Believe it or not, he's not the only serial killer who has ever converted. So how are we meant to see things like this? How are we meant to be comfortable with things like this? It's pretty difficult. Well, I think there's a good character in the Bible that helps us think about this issue. So I'm going to switch to another movie here. Um, has anybody seen the movie Paul, the Apostle of Christ on Netflix? Well, I don't think it's on there anymore, but it was on there for a couple of years, and I saw it a couple of months ago. Well, it was still on there. And I thought it was a really good movie. It's not an action movie, nor is it one of those feel-good Christian movies where everything turns out okay in the end. Not not that there's anything wrong with that. But the movie is set in the last days of Paul's life. And he was imprisoned in Rome. He's always in prison, apparently. Um, The movie centers around Paul talking to Luke about the life he has led and the things he has done in the past. And I think Luke was writing the book of Acts at the time, during the movie. But throughout the movie, there were these scenes that keep popping up over and over again, um, where Paul keeps being tormented in his dreams about the things he's done in his past. You see, before he was a Christian, Paul was a Pharisee. And during his time as a Pharisee, a little group called Christianity popped up. And these Christians were sprouting the heresies of heresies in Paul's eyes. And that angered Paul. And Paul was so angered by these Christian heretics that he took to the streets and led the persecution. He would round Christians up and he would kill them. He would put them to death by stoning. The movie focuses on this particular scene where Paul and his gang caught a fellowship of believers and it focuses on Paul chasing after this little girl who was among them. And he caught her and her family and then put them to death. And this flashback keeps haunting Paul as the movie goes on. On and on, there were multiple scenes on how he couldn't sleep. He wakes up in a cold sweat. Scenes of him being constantly challenged by the sins of his past. Now, we've been blessed to have lots of great sermons over the last couple of weeks about God's love 
and how his love is like the father and the prodigal son, how God's love is one of arms wide open, ready to receive the most irreconcilable sinners like Paul and Dharma. The last couple of sermons have focused on God's love for us, but today I'm going to focus on the church and how we should act. So let me ask you a question. If you are one of the families killed by Paul and you're in heaven seeing his conversion, seeing what he's done after his conversion for the church and spreading the message, how would you behave when he gets to heaven? How would you treat the man who killed not only you, but your family, your friends? How would you feel? How would you act? Now we have this running joke in our young adults Bible study that when some of the members get into heaven, they're going to have a few select words for Eve, you know, the lady who ate that apple and got us into this mess. And as funny as that is, there will be some Christians that we will meet in heaven or on this earth that we're supposed to call brother or sister, but it'll be very, very difficult because of what they've done. And I think the church is an important deal. God made the church. He has plans for the church. The church is important not only for this world, but also for the next. So let's think about how the church is supposed to be by looking at a fairly overlooked and underrated book. The book of Philemon is the third shortest book in the whole Bible. In fact, it's not even a book, it's just one letter that's one chapter long. The story is about a runaway slave called Onesimus. He had run away from his Christian owner called Philemon, and he seems to have stolen some money in the process. Now, Philemon was the leader of the church in Colossae and was well known to Paul at the time. Now, in those days, running away from your master was a capital offense to rule the Roman Empire. You would be killed for it. So Onesimus would, have a big, would be in very big trouble if he was caught. Just so happened that after his escape, Onesimus met Paul, the apostle, and he became a Christian. And that's pretty fantastic news. Usually runaway slaves became robbers or brigands or that sort of thing. They don't end up well. Now, before we keep going, I think it's helpful to park a little bit on slavery because the book has a lot to do with slavery. Let me make it clear. Slavery is not a good thing. People are not property and they should not be treated as such. That being said, though, slavery was so deeply embedded in first century Rome that it was the norm. It was the bedrock of their society. Now, God's plan is to get rid of slavery, but shoehorning it into the New Testament would not have been helpful. God's primary plan was not to stop slavery in the same way that it was not God's primary, primary plan to stop theft or adultery. No, God's primary plan was to save humanity. The gospel saves people's souls regardless of the culture they're in. It was revolutionary for its time. The tenets of Christianity are the same tenets that gave rise to anti-slavery movements hundreds of years later. But ending slavery during Roman times was not helpful. You see, slave rebellions did happen during those times. And what happened? They were dealt with harshly. They were killed. And usually the slaves that didn't rebel were treated even more harshly than before. So this was not the time to end slavery. But it was in God's plan to end it eventually. And God's still working on his plan to change, change slavery now. Anyway, back to Paul. Now, Paul is in a bit of a rocky situation. On one hand, Onesimus, the slave, the runaway slave, was Paul's new friend. So he wasn't going to uh, 
report him to the Roman police and get him killed. That was not an option. On the other hand, Philemon was also an important friend to Paul. He couldn't simply keep Onesimus around in secret knowing that Philemon was wronged. So there was a problem between Philemon and Onesimus that needed to be solved. So what does Paul do? He writes a letter. He sends Onesimus back to Philemon in the hopes that they will be reconciled to each other. So that's the setup. So here comes Onesimus and, knocking, and knocks on Philemon's door. And Philemon opens the door and says, You, how dare you come back here? Without saying much else, Onesimus hands Philemon the letter and Philemon would read it. Oh, it's from Paul. Now you might wonder why God would put such a letter in the New Testament. It's unique in the fact that it does not explain the gospel or any points of theology. But I think it's an important book. God thought it was an important book. He put it in the Bible. I think it's some of Paul's most explosive material for the time. Let's read and find out why. So we'll start off with verse 1. Oh, that's hard to read. Um, Paul, a, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and of, for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of everything that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is classic Paul. He starts off with a greeting and then moves on to encouraging and praising the, uh, the actions of the recipient. He's a very encouraging kind of leader. So what does he give thanks to God for? Well, specifically, he gives thanks to Philemon's love and faith. Specifically, his love and faith to God and his saints. Philemon seems to be a pretty good church leader. His actions refresh the hearts of the congregation, which gives Paul himself comfort and joy. After all, it was Paul that uh, established this church in the first place. Let's keep reading. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Now, did you catch that? Paul could have commanded Philemon to fulfill his request. I mean, Paul of all people had the authority to do so. He was an apostle. But instead, Paul asks. That seems like a risk, doesn't it? Why doesn't Paul be cautious and command Philemon to make sure the job is done? Well, it says, for the sake of love. For Paul, love is the governing principle behind all Christian relationships. It is much more meaningful that Philemon makes a decision of his own than being forced to do it. And it doesn't seem like it to us, but this is quite revolutionary for its time. If you wanted something done in the past, you get it done. You command someone to do it, and they do it. You don't ask and hope that they will fulfill it. But from our own experience, we can tell that being asked to do something and doing it is much more meaningful than being forced to do something. And I think it's an excellent sidebar on how God wants us to act in our lives. Paul is mimicking God here. Well, let's keep reading. What is Paul's appeal to Philemon? I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for also for Christ Jesus, appeal for you, my child, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, 
whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useless, useful to you and to me. Bit harsh, verse 11 there. But to paraphrase, paraphrase, I, Paul, your friend, appeal not for myself, but for the one who is bearing the letter. Onesimus, the man who wronged you, the man who ran away from you. And just listen to the way Onesimus is described. My child. It's very endearing language. Onesimus has become a Christian. He had become part, part of God's family through Paul. Much like Philemon himself, who had become a Christian through Paul. Now, verse 11 is actually a pun. Um, Onesimus means useful in Greek. So it's kind of ironic that Paul calls him useless. Um, funny guy, Paul. Uh, but how is he useless? Surely he would have done some work for Philemon. He wouldn't have just done nothing. I think Paul is looking here at usefulness in the context of eternity. Onesimus is now useful to God and his family on earth. To Paul, it is far more valuable than anything he could have done before. Let's keep reading. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but, by, but of your own accord. The verses say Paul actually found Onesimus, Onesimus quite helpful. He would have liked to keep him around for that reason. But to Paul, that would have been wrong. Philemon was his friend and would have been hide, uh, selfish to hide things from his brother especially because Onesimus was Philemon's worker. It would have been wrong for Onesimus to be working for Paul, even if, whether it was paid or not. So for Paul, that was a problem. So Paul sends Onesimus back, as if he were sending his own heart. He wants to wrong neither party. He wants Philemon to accept Onesimus with arms wide open. But he wants Philemon to make that decision himself. Let's keep reading. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. In other words, this whole situation might have been planned from the start. God was likely working in the background here. It's like that old verse in Genesis, what man meant for evil, God used for good. And in all of this, even though they're talking about a slave, none of this comes off as Onesimus being somebody's property. And that's pretty astonishing for this time period. I mean, it calls Onesimus not just a brother, but a beloved brother of Philemon. It's really explosive for the time. Nobody was writing this sort of thing about slaves. But Paul was. To Paul, the, brothership, the brotherhood between the two men surpasses whatever relationship they had here before because that brotherhood is the thing that will last to eternity. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, I don't think Paul is specifically saying free Onesimus as a slave, and I think that might be taking the text a bit too far. But 
Why is it hard to keep the traditional master-slave relationship with language like that? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, here's the part which makes you think that he might have stolen something from Philemon. Whether he had or not, I don't think is that relevant. Some wrongdoing had happened to Philemon. He had lost some money or simply a worker. And in that culture, there was some restitution to be paid. So what was Paul's response? Knowing that Onesimus can't pay his way out on his own, charge that to Paul's account. That's radical. Paul writes this with his own hands. I will repay it. He means what he says. It's almost like a legal signature. You don't do this for a slave. Onesimus is just some escaped slave. Why is Paul willing to go that far for this guy? It's because Onesimus is not just a slave. He's a brother. <clears throat> is this not the gospel in the actions of Paul? Here is Paul paying the debt of someone in, who in that culture would deserve punishment. This is like how God pays our own debts and grants us access to heaven. Now, if you're, not, if you're a non-Christian sitting here in the room trying to understand what Christianity is about, this is an analogy. Paul is taking the burden on himself, just like God takes the burden on himself. All right, next part is to say nothing of you owing me yourself. To paraphrase, also remember that you, Philemon, owe me. Your faith in Christ is because of my work. So be kind to Onesimus. And just like you have refreshed the hearts of the saints in your church, refresh me. Do as I ask. Verse 21. <clears throat> Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, Paul knows this, right? He's a good guy. Even though he's, what he's asking for is pretty radical, Paul knows he'll do it. Now, let's finish off the letter. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Lucas, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Yeah, that Mark, that Luke, the guys who wrote the um, Gospels. So there we go. We finished the whole book. You can put that... Uh, cross that off, your Bible reading plan for the year. Um, now, out of all of that, I have three takeaways for you. And this can be your application point, depending on where you are with your walk in God. All right. Number one, the church is a family loved by God. The moment you become a Christian, you join a family that is loved by God. No matter who you are, you are in the family. God loves you. Whether you're up here preaching, or singing, or serving in the background, or just sitting in the pew, God loves you. Just like in the letter to Philemon, it does not matter whether you're a slave or a master, black or white, employee or boss, parent or child, we all have the same equal access to God. In God's eyes, we are brothers and sisters within the same family. So my application point, see your fellow believers as family. And that can be pretty hard to do, but they are. Number two, the church loves you with open arms. Family loves each other. God's family is no different. It is the job of the church to love you. Just like Paul loves both Onesimus and Philemon, and Paul's expectation for Philemon to forgive Onesimus, the church loves each other. The church loves you. But the church cannot love someone it doesn't know. 
the church cannot minister to you if you aren't there? How can we pray for you if we don't know what to pray for? How can we be there for you in the tough times if we never see you? How can we encourage you like Paul does if we don't know all that much about you? Here's my application point. Be present in church. Church isn't just a service, it's a family. Stay after the service, have a chat. Join an alpha, be part of a Bible study. Be part of the church so that the church can love you with open arms. Number three. <coughs> okay. You should love the church with open arms. Love isn't a one-way thing. God's family needs all hands on deck. Be like Onesimus. Be useful. He was useful to God. He was helpful and he faithfully served Paul. You can't love your church by simply being a spectator. So here's my application point. Serve the church. I'm not talking about doing laptop duty or serving coffee in the back. Those are helpful and good, and if you're called to do that, do it. But you can start smaller. Be a brother and sister to the ones that are in need, the ones that are facing tribulation. Have a coffee, catch up with them, pray for them. Okay. So let's wrap up with the last three points. Number one, the church is a family loved by God. Number two, the church should love you with open arms. And number three, you should love the church with open arms. Okay, so I've rambled on long enough. But to finish off, I want to show you the ending scene of the Paul movie. And spoiler alert, Paul is killed. And when he gets to be heaven, lo and behold, the first people to see him are the ones that he killed, particularly the little girl that he kept seeing in his nightmares. So let's have a watch. Thanks for listening to this week's message. We hope that you've been challenged and inspired. For more information about Turalgan City Church, check out mytcc.com.au.